0: Hi, it's Richard here. I'm really happy to share with you this interview that I did recently with Joshua Weil, who's the founder of Inspiral. Um, I think it's an awesome conversation. We got into some really insightful territory. He's got a lot of useful stuff to say about what's it like to be the founder of a community? How do we decentralize power? What's the role of having a vision? How do we experiment? How do we do that safely? Uh, He talked about the psychology of being a founder and like how your own personal traits show up in the collective that's assembling around you. I thought it was really cool. Um, if you don't know about Inspiral, it's probably not a good first place to start. I'll, um, I'll add some links in the description so you can read or uh, listen to some other conversations to get better context. If you've never heard of Inspiral, it'll help you orient. Um, but if you have heard a thing or two about how that community operates. This, I thought, was a really insightful uh, unpacking of where did it come from and what's it like to try and actually to successfully start a community like this, like what impact has it had on his life and the life of other people. Yeah, it was a really inspiring and quite exciting conversation for me. So I hope you enjoy it. and. Uh, Yeah, let me know if you're doing something similar. I'm always curious to hear from other founders um, what kind of questions you have, what are you struggling with? Uh, Are there some insights here that help you on the journey? Yeah, just drop me a comment. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, enjoy the conversation. So thank you so much, Joshua, for joining me. I've got tons of questions. I hope to get to at least two or three of them. Um, Basically the frame that I have in mind is Uh, Inspiral was my first experience of something that has been really profoundly impactful in my life Um, and I I attribute that to this combination of a place for belonging and a place for meaningful work. I think those are like two two of my core needs. I didn't know that I had them then once I started meeting those needs at Inspiral I was like oh right like this is this is what it's like to be a fulfilled human being that's on some kind of path of development and feeling like I'm contributing and plugged in. I've got a place for that good stuff. And um, once I decided to leave New Zealand, I felt like um, I don't know if Inspiral is going to meet those needs anymore. You know, like it's so, um, the center of gravity is still down there. And so then I got into this, this thought process of like, okay, well, I want, <laughs> I want to make sure that I've got something like Inspiral wherever I go. How do I start a new one? Um, And also in the process, like meeting other people that had similar dreams and wishes and feeling like other people would like something like what we have at Inspiral. So I've been on this big project of trying to articulate what are the design patterns? What are the essential ingredients? What are these foundational pieces that are sufficient to kickstart the evolutionary process for uh, groups starting to do something like whatever it is that we're doing? Um, And that's been... That feels reasonably successful in the sense that other people are copying the patterns. They're, they're remixing, they're sharing back their, their lessons. It feels like there's an emerging meta community of, of other community builders learning from each other. Um, but lately I've become more and more, you know that's a whole process of like extracting, stepping outside of the Inspiral context and going, what are the design patterns that, that work in other places? But lately I've been really called into the Inspiral context and saying, what is unique about it? Like, what is that? Um, what is the special source what is the what was the unique lineage what was the conditions that um, contributed to this quite unique thing in the world um, like at the moment I'm involved in three different communities and they're all dealing with conflict at the moment and it's just obvious that one of them is going to like one of them is definitely going to explode the other one is probably going to explode and the third one's in spiral and I think it's going to be fine um, and it's and 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 that seems to be really normal that like um, community groups often explode when they encounter difficult issues. And it seems like there's some kind of process where, like I said, it's like evolution, where um, a lot of experiments are gonna fail and then occasionally one will survive and that has got strong genes somehow, it's got some kind of really resilient DNA. So it gives me, my hypothesis is that maybe Inspiral came from some prior evolutionary process that um, generated some really resilient, really creative um, DNA. So that's my first question is, is What can you tell me about where it came from? Like, did you see something? Did you visit a community? Did you read something in a book? Um, Yeah, like, were there specific people that that touched your life that you were like, oh, okay, this is what I need more of and this is how I want to change it? Like, where did it come from?
1: Yeah, cool. Um, I mean, thinking about that a bit, and one of the the big influences um, was the art exhibition I talk about sometimes, uh, Alive by Janne Tuz And it was, this was when I was, I just finished the Camino through France and Spain and I was in Paris and I saw the art exhibition. I was just like, whoa, I've never really thought about impact that much. I thought about, you know, social issues and plastic bags are bad and that kind of thing. But it was the first time that I sort of bumped into global issues. And I, I think that was, for me, that was very much one of the key parts of the Inspiral DNA was just like, so much of the world's busted like whether you're talking about money or climate change all the things just as a whole it felt like our society was awesome in some ways but a blight in many and it was the blightedness of human society and the we need to do something to make a human society which is actually worth keeping and is going to survive over millennia that i think that was the big drive for me or a big piece of dna and so that's and i usually just use the word impact for that in that lots of people see similar things or Um, maybe it was just my view of like trying to fix problems rather than you know create a beautiful future world but I find that's um that was what I sort of selected for when meeting people and when the the inspired journey at the beginning was just who else saw something like that and who else was hungry to um, to sort of fix global issues or to make a difference Um, because I found that before that experience for me I've been very much in like survival and thrive mode from an individual level how do I get a better job how do I earn more money how do I build a big business how do I have a happy life how do I create what I want as an individual and it was after that exhibition that I really sort of I I switched into a bit more of a oh it's not so much about me it's about the handprints I leave on the world Mm -hmm. and so um, finding people who wanted to leave handprints I think was one of the biggest pieces of DNA and through that work that's where I bumped into like all the climate change activists and all of the sort of 350 was in the early days of 08, 09. Um, and so I'd say the experiences of working with volunteers on the 350 climate action, um, uh, what were they, like days, to, uh, awareness raising stuff, um, that was political lobbying. That was, um, that was another big influence. Mm-hmm. And so this was where I saw lots of people who had similar sort of like, oh, climate change is a thing. What will we do about it? And so... There's something from the, and I'd call this activism light. I don't think this was hardcore activists who um, are like very much more disruptive and a lot more sort of political theory under their belts and and so on. Not that angry. This was much more like, oh, I've just heard about climate change. and Oh, here's a friendly group where I can go and join and and make my things heard. heard." So I'd call it like activist light sort of Mm. DNA. Mm. So there was something from that um, which was sort of quite influential as well. Um, so that was, there's, there's, sort of two strands, which are related a little bit. There was, I'd say another strand about, um, self-organizing. And that was mostly from a book from Mercado Semler. It oh. wasn't Maverick. It was like seven day week, seven day work week or something like that. And I might've read this in like 2004 as just one of my general business books. Um, at the same time I was reading things like, um, built to last by Jim Collins, um, good to great sort of regular, a good business kind of literature and somehow i came across that one and just the concept of like oh most employee most uh, organizations and corporations treat employees like children and what would happen if you treated everyone like adults and it was the key premise i took away from that book and it always i think i just resonated with that in my personal experience of joining the joining the workforce in the early thousands as a programmer and it's just like ah oh, companies bosses hierarchy this feels weird um and then I went into like hiring people and managing people in a small web development company. And I was like, oh, this feels awful. I never want to manage someone in my life again. Um, and so I think those two experiences of both being an employee and having bosses direct my work, and then being a sort of a partner in a small firm, hiring people and trying to make it all work, um, where both of those experiences felt quite toxic or not very good for me. Um, so I walked away from them with like, I just want to work with peers. And I want to work alongside adults, even though I'd call myself half an adult when I helped start spiral. Um, so, so that but that was that was probably the depth of the self-management lineage. Um, was that book a couple of experiences? And then as I started exploring that journey, then I started to you know find out about Morning Star and find out about you know the wealth of self-management um, folks out there, Mondragon and whatnot. Um, they they're more of a cooperative vibe, and um, so I'd say that was one sort of other sort of lineage of energy which i wove in together there were a really influential book for me was here comes everybody by clay shoki and that was just like oh internet organizing and flash mobs and um how can you get large numbers of people to coordinate their activities through the internet and so this idea of like oh maybe with software and internet type things we can organize a bit differently was this sort of the core premise um, which has been a long winding road and i've got lots of different views on it now than i did at the beginning but I think that was a big impetus for me to think about, um, OK, if we're going to do something as a group of people, um, what sort of impulse would be in there? And then I'd say the final big lineage um, or impact was from uh, Billy Matheson and the Regeneration crowd. And so that was very much, um, this was about the time I was volunteering with the 350 people. I started volunteering with this group they were called Regeneration. It was basically like youth leadership. They were getting young kids in, or kids at the end of high school and teaching them about, they do these uh, retreats and they teach them about, you know, just being effective adults um, and also kind of nudging them into the direction of sort of impact and change making. And, um, but I got to see how those events were hosted and that was my first experience in, I'd say, um, uh, the art of hosting, which not the, I, I went on the art of hosting trainings with that actual group of people, but just the art of gathering and facilitating and so on. I saw that firsthand and I was, and um, I remember in our first, Inspiral, we go for like six months. So it was like, we should do a retreat. And like 11 of us got into a batch somewhere. And, and we sort of just, from what we'd seen, just replicated stuff. So it was very blind copying and not very aware. But I think that really led um, to a very uh, hosting culture. And at the end of the day, if you look at Inspiral, like we started out with a lot of programmers. A lot of the programmers have faded. There's now much less programmers but the facilitators and the hosts have stayed. And I'd say that's the social backbone of the community is people with deep skill and interest in how do you get effectiveness out of groups of people. Um, so that would be, I was going to call that the fourth sort of sort of strand. Um, the one other piece of the puzzle for me or influence was in my early, um, oh, early 20s, I lived around an ashram community in Sydney for a while. And so that was much more like yoga, meditation, sort of spiritual community. And, but it was a bit of a sense about when you talk about belonging and when you talk about a community, there's something about that community, which was like, oh, I kind of had that experience of what it means to be in a wider extended family. And I think that would have had some sort of impact on uh, the DNA of spiral.
0: Hmm. This is interesting, um, especially that thing about uh, Ricardo Semler and this idea of treating people as if they were adults, um, even, even at work. Um, did you have experiences of like had you been in groups where you felt like everyone was being treated like an adult and that that you could see because what you a lot of what you described um, is like me is that I I call that being motivated by the negative space like like we're having this negative impact and and I was a I was a manager and I hated it and you know those kind of like knowing that there's something wrong and that propels me somewhere Um, but did you have yeah, these adult to adult experiences where you're like, yeah, it should be like this, and 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 did you have a taste of the, a taste of the destination? Not,
1: hmm. not really. Um, I would say I. The more I've worked with people over the last sort of, you know, particularly over the last decade, um, I've learned that I value freedom more than most people do, and so there was something about like I don't like being told what to do. I like to find my own way. I'm just like a grown-up toddler in a way. Um, but I think there was that desire in me, which was like oh, everyone else must must want that kind of freedom as well. Mm -hmm. And so because of, I I think one part of it was I had a strong desire not to be told what to do and a strong desire to like be driven by intrinsic motivation. But as I started to read that literature about sort of freedom, mastery and purpose and so on, I was just like, oh, yes, this is is the goal. This is exactly how everything should be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it was that on a practical level, hiring people as employees, paying salaries, managing them, all of that kind of thing, just felt really unproductive. Whereas the best work experiences I've had was when working with business partners, when you had a different sort of economic relationship. So when the first idea of Inspiral about, oh, fine, find people who want to change the world and help them get high-paid work so they can be self-funded um, changemakers, like that was the, um, at the back of all of the organizing with the climate activists. And most of them were students. Some of them had jobs um and they were just doing it in their spare time with scraps of resources and um and my experience of sort of being a freelance programmer and being able to work a couple of days a week and just fund my activism for the rest of the time was like oh if more people could do that maybe we could do stuff together and it seems like a really logical step from where I was to the next thing to like find other programmers who care about social change and try and get them contracts and become a programmer's cooperative kind of thing and that's why um, I think that was one of the reasons why my idea was let's start a program as cooperative, not let's start a programming agency um, was because I, I didn't want to replicate the other stuff.
0: Mm. So then that, that maybe connects to our next question, which is um, what do you think this, this, you know, this culture of hosting, culture of, of retreats, this paying attention to how we gather, um, what do you think that contributes? Like what is, what is that doing in the system?
1: That's, that's why we lasted 10 years. Um, like I think without that, we would have blown up at a conflict um, before then. It was, and it's not just the retreats. I think it's easy to look at the retreats and see them as the peak sort of belonging or welcoming experience. I think that form lots of really good mechanisms for, um, like our retreating helped people develop skills. So it's when you start to be hosted in a certain way, you get a sense of like, oh, there's other ways of doing group dynamics than a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, like it's there's a, people often haven't had experiences of well-hosted spaces and when you have a retreat, which has got big sessions, but also lots of small sessions, which are well-hosted, people get a bit of a taste for it. Mm-hmm. So it ripples out into all of the small hosted spaces in between the retreats. Mm-hmm. It was a really good way for welcoming new people to see, oh, this is a community. Do you want to join it or whatnot? A lot of people got inspired, inspired and lifted their eyes towards higher goals because of the experiences of those retreats. And also there was just a lot of deals that were surfaced. Like a, a bunch of people would meet each other and talk about stuff and off the back of that um people would go into a business together or do a contract or et cetera, et cetera. So I think they were really important, but I think it's also the, the facilitating energy that people held between the retreat time of getting the group to agreement, surfacing information, et cetera, that um, uh, it's, yeah, I think it's hard to overstate the impact that had on our community. Um, and that I've, I've, I had a very technical focus at the beginning um, and I think I really underestimated the amount of facilitation skills I picked up over the time, and while it was um, I'd absolutely recruited for people with that sort of skill set, I was fairly unconscious and I still thought of us as a programming cooperative, not as a facilitation cooperative because we weren't selling facilitation time um, and that's sort of why I think we survived was because of the amount of people who had that amount of skill mm-hmm.
0: I mean I can just say from my own experience of it. Um because of my own history, I also have extremely high value on freedom. That's one of the ways that you and I connect the most is this thing. Mm -hmm. No one may tell me what to do. (laughs) You know, I'm willing to listen to others and negotiate and come up with some satisfying compromise, but I will not be told what to do. Um, And my experience of, well, just the general culture, but then obviously intensified in the retreat was that this, we're facilitating people's freedom. We're like, how do we how do we design an encounter so that we're maximising freedom and um, and and that being fun and good for as many people as possible? And and I think there is some kind of in the same way as like when I go to the UK or I go to Spain, there's a different culture, right? Like there is different um, subtle kind of signs about what do we value and what are the, you know even just like the volume level in the airport departure lounge. Uh, <laughs> um, I have the same thing within spiral that it's just a unique way of being and in my travels the closest i've come to um feeling like oh these are my cousins is in the whole world around burning man you know the the burner culture which i see as the very in fact actually some of that dna kind of came in there with um alana as one of the early contributors and she had that burner burner experience as well uh, and for me again like so much of the emphasis there is about freedom it's about self-expression it's about do your own thing and don't tell other people what to do but enjoy how much fun um, and generativity there is when everyone's just doing their own thing together Um, but it sounds like one of the one of the themes that I'm hearing here and and please correct me but it seems like you didn't have that clear of an idea like you didn't have a taste of you hadn't been in a big group of people doing that free self-expression and and, uh, free self-organizing Seems like you didn't have that clear of an idea but it was just like some important North Stars to go to, and a lot of motivation and energy, um, rather than like having mapped out a plan ahead of time.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there was a, just a lot of throwing spaghetti against the wall, seeing what sticks, and then the things that sticked, building a narrative about them afterwards. And like, because while the whole idea of like, you know, more people working on stuff that matters and, you know, people want to change the world, get high paid sort of contract work, that was, they were definitely ideas that were there right at the beginning. There were probably a dozen other ideas there at the beginning as well. And that those ones just stuck the most. And so it's easy to sort of post-rationalize it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I definitely hadn't had the experience of being in like a high-functioning group of adults and going, well, this is an awesome community. That's what I want this community to be like. Mm -hmm. It was much more of a, like, I really value freedom. The stuff I was reading about adult-to-adult relationships versus adult-to-child relationships, hugely influential um, to my early thinking. And just saying, that's how I want to relate to people. And I think that um, that naturally, you know, attracted certain people and repelled other people and, and it sort of created a vibe in the early days. Yeah.
0: So on this um, throwing spaghetti thing, mm-hmm. um, if, if you were talking about a startup and you were trying, you know, seven different iterations of a product until you found one that sticks, that's a pretty familiar process. But when you're talking about something that is more like a community um, that, and I know it's kind of, a blend between between a startup and a community, but the effect of the spaghetti not sticking, uh, part of that is a lot of feelings getting hurt and conflict and like disappointments and ruptured loyalties. And, you know, basically with the spaghetti we're throwing is people in their relationships. Um, so how, yeah, what's that been like? What's that, what's that human dimension been like of the experimentation and the like sometimes yeah, knowing that sometimes some of these experiments are going to involve people getting hurt, how do you how do you deal with that?
1: Uh, personally, um, I would say that sometimes uh, what would it be? Uh, I think I have a personality where I don't feel emotions in groups as much as other people do. I know some people in Inspiral felt that pain very viscerally, uh, viscerally, and it was unbearable for them, particularly in the centre of the network. I think just because of you know how I relate to people. I could notice it and I could hear it, but I didn't feel it as much, which probably meant I had a higher threshold for it, which probably meant I caused more pain than I needed to or should have while I was in the middle of the network. And, you know, I, one of the prompts you, I remember relating to in this invitation was like, what are the flaws of the people who start something on the thing itself? And I think on one hand I was probably too callous um, a lot of the time where it was just like, cause if I think about, um, I remember like four or five years in, I did. I actually went through all of the people who signed up to Inspiral, and just said, "How many of them are here now?" Well, the first 20, there were two. The next 20, there were three. There was a massive amount of churn, and I, and I counted about 400 people um, to get to a community of about 60 people. And this is where we had it, that sort of ballpark. And this, and when I say join Inspiral in those days, that meant join our internal sort of banking system where you can get work through the network, and um, you know, join by and that was um, just seeing all the logins of people who'd showed up and said, yeah, I'd like to do contract work and change the world and so on. And some had done work, some hadn't. Um, but a lot of them had just showed up, said hi, moved on in different ways. So that was, that was in one way. There was an incredible amount of churn in the early days to get to that group of people. And there was a lot of filter in that churn. It wasn't everyone jumped into the core, got hit by a bad experiment and left. Some of them just showed up, didn't find what they were looking for, left without much ado. Some people showed up for a little bit, did some work. Um, some people showed up for two, three years, moved on, were, but it was a really, it was fascinating to see that. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to innovate when you're naive. Um, one, you're not aware of how bad it can be and what, how things can go wrong. Um, you kind of just see the gaps and you just want to try stuff. And so I do understand how innovation is a young person's game in some way, because God, we're all just so naive at the beginning so much that we just didn't know um, about anything. And but we still gave it a shot. And I think it was that I kind of think for starting something, you need more naivety and motivation than you do experience. Um, that they can actually be assets when you're doing stuff when they're new. And also, you know, it's uh, you know we dodged so many bullets. It's a miracle that Inspiral survived. Um, and I think that on one hand, you can say, oh, Inspiral has DNA or something. That's also just, they were just lucky. Um, a bunch of things went our way when they could have gone the other way and that, sometimes a lot of communities blow up just because that's what's most likely going to happen. Um, Especially if you're trying to do a community in a different way.
0: Yeah. Um, I really like that word you said, um, maybe you're too callous, Um, especially in in the early days. And I want to reflect though that um, I see a lot of groups fail in the opposite direction of being too tender um, that it's like, I'm I'm a bit like you in the same sense of that I often won't empathize with people in a visceral way like I kind of have to do that intentionally it doesn't it doesn't come instinctively to me um, and so therefore I can I can definitely be read as being callous and what I've seen with other groups where there's much more empathy and tenderness is that once the um, once the door is opened to like hey I, I didn't want to I didn't want you to feel hurt let's hear about that let's start processing it it's like sometimes there's this overwhelming flood of hard feelings that need to be processed and it's actually you can't you can't stop it once it's once the door's open and while you're doing that while it's important for the people it doesn't send you any doesn't give you any external momentum you know it's all this very internal focus thing Um, so a lot of the founders i'm working with are just way too tender and i'm like how do we how do we make them more callous Um, Or how do we make it maybe it's not you know that's not a very good destination but it's like uh How do we make it safe to experiment with the stuff which is more sensitive than just a product? You know, how do we make it safe for people to experiment with uh, their sense of belonging? You know, which is really—that's one of the most triggering things that I've—I've noticed in people. Is like when you give you dangle this carrot of like, hey, there's a lot of people here that feel belonging. Wouldn't you like some of that? Um, It's extremely motivating that carrot. And then if you say, didn't work for you, like that can be crushing. It can really feel like a like, a, um, like I failed some kind of existential test, you know, like if I didn't find my belonging here, there must be something wrong with me. I must, you know, you can, you can see people spin into these stories. I wonder on that theme, if there are other, you know, as you've grown and matured and developed more of your own self-awareness and, and had reflections from other people, I'm sure people have given you a lot of reflections. <laughs> um, are there other things that you recognize in your personality in the early days that kind of left an impression on the group that maybe feels a bit out of balance or a bit lopsided or like, oh. <laughs> um,
1: I'd just, I'd say like programmer mindset, mechanical mindset rather than organic ones. Um, in that I love to design complex systems. That's why I'm a programmer. Um, and designing complex community systems, it just doesn't serve anyone. Um, I, and learning how to get simplicity as you're trying to get like a group agreement. I think that's one thing I've valued off us when we've been jamming on agreements is like, oh, how do we make that simpler? How do you get the right level of abstraction? Uh, because I, I naturally had a higher tolerance for complexity. So making things more complex than they needed to be was a big sort of failure, which I've learned to adapt over time. Um, I think one of the things that worked really well and I found this really disruptive when showing up, particularly in commercial spaces, was when you structure financial deals to help other people and not yourself, people like go, huh, what, "What? why are you doing, I don't understand. Because that's not how commerce works. It's usually much fiercer. Having a gentleness of using economic mechanisms to lift up people around you rather than to concentrate for yourself was a very disruptive position, which actually attracted a bunch of people in the early days. And I think that idea of, Inspiral as a community, not a business, was one of the best decisions we made. We're not going to try and put a business at the core of Inspiral where we are selling something to the external world. We're going to treat this like a cost centre which people who love Inspiral will fund out of their own pocket, I think was the right financial model for a community. And it meant that business was taken out of that middle bit, in the middle of a little bit. Inspiral is where you go to give. It's where you go to learn. It's where you go to sit around a fire. It's not where you go to earn your livelihood. It's where you get cheered on to earn your livelihood in other ways. Um, and so... Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent on, but it was that that showing up as an act of service in a business context, which is really natural if you're showing up in a community context, um, and to give in that way, I think that was one of the things which really helped, particularly in the first year or two. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, on that tangent, I think um, having, I mean, how many businesses were there in Inspiral that have since failed? Um, It's such a good design principle to to be experimenting at a smaller scale than not, you know, like not not risking the whole bank on everything every time, but going like, look, there's tons of brands and some of them are going to fail. Some of them are going to just dissipate. Some of them are going to explode, um, but we never had, well, we kind of evolved away from the idea of having an spiral business and in, in, in the whole, I think that created a whole lot of resilience too. Um,
1: oh, well, Another idea on failings. Um, I did definitely have too much of an MPI building uh, mindset at the beginning it's a little bit like being conditioned to like, oh, how do you build up something and see it expand and grow like a computer game kind of vibe? And I think some of the, the drive for Inspiral branded businesses was, oh, what if Inspiral is a big empire? And, you know, one day it becomes a micro-nation kind of, like that kind of grandiosity. And the drive, the drive which was very much like, um, how I care a lot if Inspiral is not successful. I care a lot if people don't value Inspiral kind of thing. And it's... um it's taken a lot of time to get that detachment where it's like, hey, if Inspiral spiral stays small, that's cool, and I'm happy with it. And I'm not just saying that I'm actually happy with it because it's really easy to say stuff like that when you deep down want it to be an empire. And I've noticed, particularly in the conversations around growth, um, some people, and like when you're talking about belonging, I think, and belonging is like a, belonging can be really toxic. It can mean people aren't, you know, it's it's, it's an unhealthy relationship to hold um, lots of people who have a very deep sense of belonging but also no sense of belonging is equally toxic. So I feel like there's a kind of a balance there. And, but I've seen that when people have not over, they have too much belonging, too much self-identification with the whole, that all of a sudden things like um, the decisions start to become much less about what the community should do and much less about how do I feel about that?
0: Totally. Yeah, <laughs> the whole, um train of thought going off on that one, but I think it's more of a private conversation. Um, I wanted to reflect one back at you, which I think I heard you say um, a while ago, many years ago actually, uh, which is another one of your character traits that, that expanded into the room and it, and, it, and it left an imbalance, which was basically that you're the most generous person I've ever met. And, and like you were just describing about, let's design our business interactions to um, lift up everyone. And I'm not exactly sure where that came from, how you, how you got oriented to that, but it's obviously like part of your fingerprint is like this attitude of service and giving. And I remember in the early days that it felt like your, because you've got a, a central role, especially in the early days, right? Your role was very central, now it doesn't feel that way. But in the early days, people were looking to you for a sense of like, how do I be a good and spiral person? I'll, I'll, I'll be a bit like Josh. Um, and so, I think in the early days, there was this real implied pressure to give more. To, to just, how can I be? The, how can I be generous like that? Um, but I don't think people realized how. Yeah, I, I don't know if people knew really how to evaluate how much can I actually sustainably give. Like your your capacity for giving is just higher than most people, and especially in those days, you know, your um, the other demands on your life, you, you could tolerate a huge amount of risk. You could tolerate putting all this energy on a, on a big dream for a long time and it could have not paid off. And there's other people that were not in that position of security and resilience that were giving a lot. And then they're like, oh, <laughs> I've given too much and it hurt. And there was this whole cycle, I think, of overgiving. And it actually feels like that has, that we've matured out of that phase now. That doesn't seem to be such a problem. But it's so peculiar because that obviously, being a generous person to me is like a great character trait. Um, it's not something that you should... You know be suspicious of it in yourself but it, it still felt like it, it matured into this like weird um put a kind of peer pressure into the room that uh we had to correct for eventually
1: yeah interesting um i'd say on one hand that generosity was very calculated not so much in terms of what do i get back from it but the whole bit of inspiral for me was like oh i want to change the world i'm probably going to fail most people fail when they're trying to do innovative stuff if I help lots of other people try and change the world, one of them is probably going to make it. Um, that was the calculation of Inspiral, the idea of if you're a hardcore changemaker and you really see a thing, put 80% of your time into your venture and 20% of time into a community of like-minded people's ventures. And I think that that idea of like, it felt like the right balance of mutuality in a way. Like, yes, you need to succeed on, you're going to try and everything you can to succeed on your own merits. But you're also, it's a little bit of a hedging your bets, but the, the, the benefit you get from hedging your bets in that way is this amazing group of friends. Mm. (laughs) Um, Because I think one of the things of Inspiral was just, I was just lonely. Like I just didn't have colleagues or peers or um, connections with one, a community of belonging or people that I valued as lifelong um, friends. And because most of my history was also like moving cities. And when I moved to city, I just didn't stay in touch with anyone. I was very much a who's in front of me right now kind of relationship. And and so all through my past before Inspiral, I've got people that I met, and then when our situation changed through work or location, I stopped staying in touch with them. And then Spiral is the first time where I've actually had relationships which have maintained past physical locations and past um, community things or past um, work or, or proximity. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of that drive as well, which I think prompted to have quite poor boundaries around, like, okay, whatever it takes, you know, whatever the, the sacrifice, let's do that. And I agree that the willingness to sacrifice lots. I think it's, it's like, I can't imagine a, a founder succeeding without that. It, without that, it's like, you need to have it, but also it's like probably the toxicity of founders in that it's unhealthy for other people to do that. And it's unhealthy for people to do it over a long time. Um, and we and I, you're right, we did see lots of people who stepped in and gave too much and got burned and had to step out. Um, yeah. It's kind of, I,
0: I see it as like a calculated risk, you know, like I'm willing because of my situation knowing all of my contextual factors, I'm willing to take a risky bet on some crypto investment or something. Um, but I wouldn't recommend my parents do that, you know, with their yeah, mortgage yeah. and their the stage of life that they're in. And, you know, there's all these factors, um, which I have in my background context, which I'm tracking when I'm making the, the, the risky decision. Um, but people might just say, oh, Rich thinks it's good to invest in that, <laughs> in that crypto thing oh. and copy me, which is, you really shouldn't be um, making, you shouldn't be copying decisions that way, but that's a nuance that's easily lost in translation.
1: And it's pretty. It's hard to um, when you're leading a community, or you're founding, or you're active, and as a sort of a um, someone with a lot of influence in it, it's really challenging to be focused on what what you're trying to achieve, what's the project or the initiative that you're doing in the community or um, from the community, and then also what's the unconscious effect your actions are having on those around you. That's actually quite a takes a lot of awareness to do. And like you said, I think a lot of us growing up in Inspiral, we learn to notice that stuff more. And it's like, oh, if I act like that, um, that's going to have that kind of influence just because someone sees me do it, um, not because of what I say or anything like that. And um, and that's something I've learned a lot more is that, okay, when what what is the impact of my actions when I show up in communities because of you know, stories people might have heard about me or um, stories they might have seen about the network or implied things and titles and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I remember another prompt for this interview I think you had along the lines was, um, uh, oh, I've forgotten it now, it was long, do you remember it?
0: Um, what comes to mind is that um, the way I'd framed it was something like when you, when you have this kind of influential role and people recognize you in some way and they have, like you say, stories, um, you can easily have a disproportional influence where you're just like, like in my case, it's like, I might have an opinion, and people will assume that that's a fact or they'll assume that that's a, a a strong proposal or like oh we should go this way because Rich said something or um and so I'm finding there's a real tension between just being myself just expressing whatever I, I'm doing and having to be attentive to the impact that it's going to have and having to kind of regulate and be running it feels like I'm running a, like quite a complex game to like have a measured impact because because just being myself seems to have too much of an influence because there's a lot of people that are looking for me looking to me for guidance about how do I be around here, um. So I've just wondered, yeah, how do you think about that? What have you felt there? What have you learned? And that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the the thing which tickled in my mind. The idea of how do you balance self expression and just being who I want to be, how I want to be, um, and how do you balance how other people see you because of reputation or Um, sort of influence and where i've come to in it is that like as the cost of influence in the community is you have to regulate your self-expression it's not appropriate just to be what you want to be and say hey that's just that's just me you know deal with it i think the the responsibility of whether your influence is um, desired or not is that if you have a lot of influence in community the responsible thing is to pay a lot of attention to the impact your words have and that sometimes it's not appropriate to say some things or be or to act in certain ways just because of the influence you have. And that can feel really restricting. And I battled against that for most of my time when I had a lot of influence in Inspiral. Because now that I've got much less influence, I am so much happier. I I enjoy this community so much more. Um it is just, it is the uh it's, it's such a gift to to have the history with Inspiral. But then now to have this freedom and this space where it's just like, oh, I can be myself a lot more now. Um, And in one way, I think that's why one of our best ideas as a community was like, no one should lead all the time. Um, Everyone should lead some of the time. And I think that's just such a a rich sort of um, philosophy. And that like, yeah, when you are in a position of leadership and lots of people know you and you have asymmetric relationships or asymmetric influence or power or money or weight information, whatever it is, that to notice when people are in that position, to give it a name and a role and to give it a lot of support, and to realize that it's unhealthy for people to stay in that position for very long. Because when you're in that position, no self-expression, that's not on the table. You're there to serve the community. Um, and if you want self-expression, step out of the middle. Um, I think is a, that's, I wish I hadn't known that. If someone had said that this is the rule, this is the game you're in. Yeah. Uh, I think I would have found that quite healthy. And I probably would have stepped out earlier. Mm. Oh, this is so interesting. Just rewinding the tape 20 minutes to when you're
0: talking about freedom Uh, because this is the opposite of freedom right this is obligation this is responsibility this is like having really strong limits put on on your authentic you know spontaneous self-expression um and i can hear the relief of like now the now the the system has evolved to a point where you can relax a bit and just be yourself and because you're not having such a strong responsibility um but i wonder if there's if you've thought about um you know, if, if it's like there's freedom over here and there's responsibility, it's like you started very free, then you got this responsibility and you've come back. But I wonder if there's kind of like a higher um, integration of those two poles. Like, uh, have you, Do you have ways of thinking about responsibility or obligation or freedom now that, um, that kind of attend to that polarity? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of a tricky question I'm getting at. A little
1: bit. If I start to think about the flaws in my personality now, after the, like, the experience and so on, I am so allergic to responsibility. Like in in like my work in Dev Academy, sort of with the you know, twenty five person company and whatnot. As soon as I'm kind of like shuck, or shuck I don't know, avoid responsibility sometimes, and I notice myself doing it because I get the the feeling that the more responsibility I take on, the less freedom I'm going to have. So I would say if there's a higher plane, I probably haven't reached it yet. I'm probably still on the pendulum down the bottom, learning about paying attention to the swings. Um, that uh, I think deeper about it. Um, I just think it's about clarity. Like there's something, and I haven't yet, uh, so diving into a self-management tangent, the dream of like um, having explicit accountabilities and responsibilities which are documented um, and it's conscious delegation amongst a group of people is like it's a really expensive thing to do. Most groups I see when they're doing self-organizing things have a lot of that live implicitly, which is why small teams are so easy because, you know, you pay attention, you notice, oh, Bob just does that, Alice does that, et cetera and you can get away with so much in the implicit space. And then when you try and step up a size level um, and you try and get more formality in delegations and so on, like I find it really hard to see 20, 30, 40-person companies with good job descriptions, where they're not just something that got written when the job was created, stuck in a drawer, and that actually reflect the evolving responsibilities that change. Um, That still feels like an elusive dream for me. And so that's, that's kind of where I think about when I think about the balance between responsibility and authenticity is like actually how can we have conscious clarity And if you think about a human having more consciousness over eating or exercise or not they're doing it with intent rather than just out of habit or impulse i feel like i have not yet seen conscious organizing at a group of 20 30 40 people and i'd love to what i see is a lot of impulsive organizing or unconscious organizing where we just replicate models from different places without too much awareness and and the reason why is because it's so expensive one to figure it out and um, know what it should be and then to actually implement so it takes quite a lot of energy and surplus and skill which I just don't haven't seen that much of um, so that's sort of like I, I think you're right I think there is a hierarchy where you can get really good balances between freedom and responsibility but personally I just I feel like it's a I haven't seen much of it
0: yeah thankfully um, when it comes to organizing the bar is so low like <laughs> most organizations you have like the majority of people pulling against each other, and then a couple of people being engaged and productive, and that that kind of gets us a three percent efficiency or something. And then if you get high functioning teams, well, it's like suddenly you're at twenty percent efficiency, uh, and that's a huge gain on where uh, on the baseline. But like you say, yeah, most I'm I'm still looking for the organization with thirty people that's really humming. I haven't, I haven't you know, humming at the state that I'd like to see.
1: And again, that's why I'm so grateful for all our colleagues who are doing the work of sort of self-organizing and self-management or management consulting and helping people organize better it's like it's it's hard work and i'm glad people are stepping up to do it
0: yeah um i think one important question um both for myself but also i know that other people are thinking this it's about um i guess that that process of coming into leadership and influence and then coming out like how how have you thought about it? What worked? What did you do? What didn't work? Like what, if you were going to do it again, like you said, you would step out faster. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you've been thinking about that whole journey of like leadership succession, uh, letting go. Yeah. How does does it feel to let go all that sort of stuff?
1: Uh, I think when I think back on it, it's like, it was really there from the beginning for me. Like it was, while I had, I think, a lot of unconscious empire-building drives and wanting in Spiral to be big and special and and something. And um, I also was pretty clear that I didn't want to be the emperor of the empire. Um, I just wanted it like that kind of thing. Like it was, so for example, one of the worst things I did on trying to step back from leadership was I tried to do it too soon in that, so like in Spiral, it's like 2011, we had 60 people around or something like this. and I went on a road trip with Billy Matheson and the Regents. So Billy Matheson, the guy who started Regeneration and that, I did a 15-week road trip with him around the country where I just said, like, hey, everyone, here's our new co-working space. That's great. You're all self-organizing. I'm going into a van with some mates, and we're going to go running workshops for young people. And this was, this was my idea of creating space for leaders to step into. And it, it was horrible. It only worked because a couple of people stepped up and made massive sacrifices, and they just wore the, the pain of jumping into the middle to organize this chaos, of a party that they didn't start. And so it was more of an abrogation of responsibility than it was creating space for new leaders. So that was something that didn't work. Um, And it was that was one of the bullets where it all could have fallen over and it didn't because a couple of people stepped up, um, made big sacrifices and um, kept it all going. Um, And so the other one, it was... So I think the impulse was there to step back from leadership from the beginning. And that was, I think, really useful to know that, okay... I, I can't remember when we started using the phrase of like, no one should lead all the time, everyone should lead some of the time. But for me, that was a real mantra. And I really just paid a lot of attention to like micro, acts of micro leadership. Who is, who is leading this thing and who is following even without roles and formalities? Who's, who's coming up with the ideas? Who's negotiating the complexity? Who's overcoming obstacles? And who's getting a group of people to move together towards a new sort of state? Paying attention to that, celebrating it whenever I could um, sort of egging i, I did a, a probably a bad thing i did um, and this is i remember probably ants Ants said um, the definition in spiral is digging traps or digging pits for your friends to fall into um, it was something along those lines where i was like yeah i did that um, and i think a lot of us kind of we get really excited particularly at retreats and you go like hey here's a really exciting thing you should totally do that and sometimes people would and um and so i did it often the way I, in my head i was like oh. If I have more influence in this community and I can see an opportunity, maybe I can work alongside someone to help them lead towards that opportunity. And then we can do it together or maybe they can do it a little bit in front or maybe I can do it a little bit in front. I think that's really healthy. Like that's a good strategy. I did that a lot. And that's what I continue to do a lot as I'm trying to distribute power in the group is sometimes it's a case of I'll lead at the front, but I'll try and bring someone alongside in the leadership journey. Sometimes I'll I'll lead alongside someone and try and have good agreements with it. And sometimes I'll lead from behind, which can be sometimes like acting as a backstop. Like, hey, if you get out of your depth, call me up and maybe I can catch it. Um, maybe it's egging people on or motivating them, however you sort of think about it. But like, hey, you know, what if we did this and that would be cool and, you know, and so on. Um, and I'm also trying to experiment now with how does it, what's it like to lead as an advisor? And that's kind of like, I think we're all too young to be playing with word elders. Um, but as someone who's been in this community for a decade or so, how can I? not be in the middle of the leadership but how can I be supportive in a healthy way and so I feel like a lot of the that idea seems quite sound to me and I still like those practices but it can take so many mishap forms which are digging trap traps for your friends to fall into or setting people up for failure or helping people can com- give too much etc particularly in a community context where you're not paying people to be there mm. Mm.
0: well at least I can report um... Something worked <laughs> over the years, something worked. Like it definitely feels like, of course you've got a unique role to play. You've, you've, um, like if you, if you had to ask, if we did an anonymous survey and said, um, who, who in this community most embodies the values and the vision and the culture and spiral, if you had to choose one person, who would it be? Um, I think your name would probably come to the top of that list. Um, but even that, like if we had taken that pulse um, like five times over the last 10 years, uh, you would have gone from 100%, everyone saying you, to now maybe 51%, you know, like that. that and maybe even not, maybe even not. Yeah. That, that, um, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should take yeah. that survey.
1: Possibly. It feels a little bit um, like find the person who embodies the values of a community the most. It feels like, you know, there's some consequences to that question. But I do think that one of my goals has been to have less people who know me and less people who rely on me in the community. And that's just solving relational asymmetries. Um, I found that concept of um, looking at asymmetries in a group to be like there need to be some. You can't have homogeneity, but Um, but, um, but uh, that um, noticing when there are as- asymmetries and then consciously managing them as um tensions in the community. Mm-hmm. And so that's um that was that would probably be the other thing I'd say for people who are finding themselves in the center of a community and wanting to have be less in the center that, One of that is to spot people who are are taking or uh, have the potential to take acts of micro-leadership and then working alongside them in that co-leadership I mentioned. But the other one would be pay attention to the asymmetries in the community. Where does the information live? Who knows the most things? Where do the relationships live? Where's the money? Where's the reputation? Those kinds of things. And then needing them like someone would uh, when you're needing out a knot in a massage. And just slowly, you can't do it fast, it takes time, but slowly over time, removing or helping people um, distribute those asymmetries around so that they are either they're more balanced so let they're, they're spread around more people. they're temporally changing. so the asymmetries change in a healthy way over time um, and to avoid uh, concentrating mm. that's 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 how um, that's how I think you can decentralize leadership in an effective way. There's nothing to do about agreements or rules or anything. It's just about find the asymmetries and need them out.
0: Mm. I love that massage metaphor. I'm thinking about a friend of mine who's in a position that you were in maybe, you know, two years into Inspiral or something, and he's really eager to be decentralizing power. Um, and there's specific things where he's like, oh, here's, a, here's an important project that someone can do that's not me. And um, he's really burnt because people are sluggish to pick it up and then they do a crap job. <laughs> um, and so it's like, I'm trying to, I don't know, my, my instinct is like, like you say, notice who's got these sparks of leadership and really celebrate them and lift them up and give them every support that you can and like use my privilege to elevate the other person and like try and bounce it off but when you're in the moment of it you know where you're really disappointed because you tried to hand something off and they did a terrible job of it um, that's another that's that's another one of these like bullets that we dodge. like that's another time where you can just throw in the towel and say this is no good you know i'm trying and people don't want to pick it up But um, I I guess it's that patience,
1: yeah. It's mostly because of training or mismatch. Like it's like, oh, they're trying to do something which was too hard. Um, It might blow up from from like external reasons. But one of the, if I was to do in differently from the beginning, I would probably put more of a focus on training. Like, It's easy to say, oh, facilitators, that's what made us survive. Um, That's very different from like, here is the two day facilitation training you have to be recognized in a certain way. and that idea of actual formal training to help people do things so that they are ready and capable of dealing with different challenges, um, I'd probably put more of a full education element mm-hmm. into a community.
0: I'm just going to double click on that then because this is an emerging pattern I'm already seeing is that um, this cohort based learning you know that's like either six weeks or three months or something. you're doing it with twenty people or thirty people. Uh, you have the whole community gets together, but you also have small pods. That's a thing that's happening in the world and um, there's a couple of communities i know that are using that as their intake process and it just makes so much sense because you're getting upskilled, but you're also getting relationships you're also getting a, a flavor and once you've done five or six calls together you're ready to start taking some leadership you're ready to say like oh i get how things go here and i this is my this is my piece to fill so it's really satisfying for me from that kind of design perspective to see other people starting further down the road I'm like, yeah that's so smart we should definitely have done that but yeah, well, that's really nice
1: yeah.
0: um I want to have one more question for you um a few times you've mentioned this empire building instinct and and um and you can see the shadow of that right like there's some kind of I don't know what it is for me it's like an ego thing of I've got to have a big impact for us I'm not worthwhile or blah 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 you know there's some mm-hmm. there's some immaturity in there um, and that's why I called it micro solidarity as a way of like, because I knew that this empire building is going to arise and lots of people that are attracted to this kind of work. And I wanted to kind of club them with that micro word. Like if you're, if you're not doing it at the small scale, you're not doing it. Um, <laughs> but all of that disclaimer, I would love it if you would flex your empire um, muscle just for a second. Um, so like, let's imagine that somewhere between what Inspiral is, you know, the, the stories Inspiral is telling in the world and what micro-solidarity is putting into the world and there's now Game B, there's this explosion of intentional communities. It's lots of like, um, yeah, people having another go at doing transformational impactful collectives. Um, yeah, what's your vision? Like if you imagine there was 50 Inspirals out there in the world, um, do you have a sense of like what that, what what needs in the world could be met, or uh, what impact could be had, or like, yeah, any any painting you've got for that vision of like, what those? What would be the difference between those collectives, and how would they play, and all that sort of thing? I'd love to hear just briefly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> getting too intoxicated. Um,
1: oh, it's easy when you're talking about other people's stuff. Yeah. Um, and to me, the the opportunity that's most present is like if you look at the history of building societies. Um, and this is one of the earlier models, or not early, but it's early for us, right, model of cooperative cooperative movement of like, hey, we can borrow money from banks, or we can just pull our money, lend the money to each other, and maybe that's better for us. And the impact that had on communities and well-being and belonging and connection was really material, and it was global, and it spread as a model. And so my sense about the the best use of if you had 50 spirals or better versions of inspirals connected with each other, because my first hope would be that they're all much better than we are. Um, Like it's, there's, I think, while I I don't know many organisations that look like Inspiral that were before we were, um, I hope that we're just an early offshoot in terms of where evolutionary history goes and that other people will find what the sustainable form of this type of community looks like and they'll refine it and they'll help it spread like wildfire in its own right. So I'd say one thing to consider if you're doing a community like this is like, you're an early species, find some good DNA, help it share. Doesn't matter what happens to you, it just matters what happens to the species. Um, And that if we all keep doing this as evolutionary research, enough DNA will be created that we will see something which can be more powerful than like limited liability companies, which is another thing which has spread like wildfire in the last 400 years. And you can see the impacts of that organizational form on our planet and our species. So I think there's one line of impact, which is just like build a better organizational species help it spread around and help bake into that DNA like the don't kill your habitat kind of vibe. So that's like actually you're here to, you know, create benefit around you, not to extract benefit towards you. Um, so I think that's that's the one thing I name. I also think there's other opportunity which emerges, which is very much around to it's if we had the perfect organizational form, but we had no resources behind it, it's a waste. You need to have the oomph behind it to actually do something with it. And I think that's where commercial success comes in. It's like, if we don't build, and this is where I think empire, the, the trap into empire building is like, I'm here for global impact. If I just make life better for 200 people, that's nice. But is that the best I could have done with my time in the world? Um, and the natural thing is, oh, we need to do bigger. We need to do more. We need to do faster. And then you're you know you're modeling yourself off the Ubers of the world and the unicorns as your benchmark. And so I think that um, it's a natural sort of thing. I think the, the logic is sound. Um, but within that sound logic can hide a lot of emotional shade, shadows, particularly for founders. And so, you know, Debbie Dragons kind of thing. But um, the, I think the way to get the oomph with where we're at at the moment, if you had a network of 50 awesome communities with each other, is like, cool, you might be in the business of R&D for uh, DNA. So you're, you're researching DNA for the, better of the betterment of this organisational form. But you're also in a commercial search function where you are trying to find valuable companies Which people can own and they can control and they can use the surplus of those community of those companies to go towards a generative future for the planet. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the other thing is, and it's like, you know, we were a programmers collective. We were a service business. We were selling people's time for money. It was a lucrative model which gave us a surplus to explore a whole bunch of space. If we had have been um, in another industry and say, say, we're a bunch of facilitators, much less lucrative industry, much much more shallow market much harder, you need to have cut through, you need to have a lot more skill and reputation to cut through in the facilitation game. We probably wouldn't have succeeded as a cooperative. We wouldn't have had the surplus to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's a pretty simple, boring organizational model, but I feel like all these communities who are searching for commercial opportunities, when they find one, like if, if imagine if the next Uber was discovered by one of these communities and a company within it was like, hey, I think we have struck commercial gold. We'll need to go really fast. We we'll need to raise resources. But if we do it, and imagine if that company was owned in this cooperative generative sort of um, ethos, then I think that's where the 49 friends come in. It's like, hey, I think we found something. Can you help us scale this where you are? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, you know that's, that's the mature model of it. I think the stepping stones to get there is just trading business models with each other. And um, when a community of entrepreneurial people has a business which is working, then the pathway to growth might be partnering with other organizations and smoothing out those pathways and maybe that deal goes okay or not but hopefully it it creates a a relational flow so that we can start to get more international deals deal makers and we can start to really explore what cooperative ownership and generative business looks like at a transnational thousands of people collaborating kind of scale because I think we've proven that you can do that kind of thing at 100 person scale in a couple of communities pretty easily and you know you can see in spiral having small communities out there but who are the Like my dream was always like, could we have funded ambassadors who just show up in other communities and they basically facilitate deal flow um, for new businesses or just sales or so on? Because when you look at feeding an entrepreneurial ecosystem, the thing which matters is sales. Like every anyone can build a valuable product. Very few people can market and sell it correctly or accurately and in a way where everything adds up. And so learning how to sell things on behalf of people and so on and build up global brands, et cetera, that would be the... That's the opportunity I see, um, and so you yeah, know that that's the best I got. Nice,
0: yeah, I'm I'm i in. Sign me up. Um, yeah, it, it it feels to me that we this is this is part of why we need uh, experimentation in many different contexts, so that like somehow um, somehow there's there's something about the facilitation gathering culture and its spiral that seems to be a critical ingredient. But then you have also got the New Zealand economic context, which it's pretty shallow, you know, like that's changing in the last few years with more capital finally showing up um, and more creative capital. That's like trying to do something. Um, But that's been so obvious, like traveling to different parts of the world and seeing like, oh, okay. So like in Europe, there's a ton of money. It's not so much interested in business, you know, it's all of this like, um, it's all public money. It's all these grants, and it's like, oh, well, okay, maybe we can. There's probably collectives here that can. Well, I, I know some of them that know how to um, put their bucket into that ocean of capital and and throw it into the community in a sustainable way. Um, and there's probably other other contexts geographically where that kind of impact capital is more accessible. You know, whether that's like in Korea or in North America or something like that. And I can, um, yeah, I just love the vision of like basically that we each. Um, we're doing something, like you say, that, uh, there's something in common we have, which might be is about how do we organize for benefit? How do, we, how do we leave a positive residue around us so that people are happy to have us as neighbors? But then also we're distinct that we're each doing our own thing and, and just optimizing for that, that one part. And, and then, yeah, connecting and sharing. And, and um, there is a version of the whole decentralized crypto DeFi Dao space where these things can come together, right? Like that, that you have the the humanity and the honesty and the character and the virtue, and then this like extremely efficient capital flow and creative decentralization of ownership and and governance and so on. Like I can imagine that coming together, but it's also a very precarious match. You know, it's there's tons of exper- experiences of the money coming in and kind of like corrupting things. So, um, yeah. I hope we just do a ton of experiments there, I guess. That's my, my thought. Um, I'm keen to wrap it up because I, I know it's getting late over there. Um, I guess it feels natural for me to, just to give you a word of appreciation and, and gratitude. Like, um, I had a couple of experiences recently. A couple of people contacted me and said, Rich, you've had such a positive impact on my life. You know, Like moved country, got me a job, got me a house, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, um, and so I started tracing back, well, who's had an impact on me and you're you're right up there. Um, you know my parents obviously have had a big impact, but you're like one or two steps down from that and and I know it's not just me like there's something about the way that you've decided to show up in the world which is just an extraordinary force for good, such so, so much benefit for so many people. so I just want you to know how much how much of a difference that's made to me, and I hope that I've passed on some of what I've learned to others as well so. I mean,
1: so enthusiastically grateful for you. Yeah, Um, I would say that that's the that's the drug of generosity, right? When you just start giving to people and help them get jobs and move countries and so on, it's a it's an addictive thing because there's nothing more for me, more satisfying than just seeing like having a meaningful impact on people's lives. And it's it's not like people and mass; it's just rich and ants and certain, like just individuals. where the richness is and and staying in relationship with those people is just like it's it's a pretty blissful way of being um so it's kind of like why would you do anything different
0: (laughs) because you hadn't seen it before i think that's why i think people are really lacking models um if you've got any last comments you know thinking that there might be five or ten other community founders in the circle with us if you've got any closing words for them i'd love to hear
1: them uh just look after yourselves in the journey it's a rough ride um And it's easy to to bump yourself around too much. And just, you know, uh, thank you for everyone who's dreaming of a better world and taking a step towards it. It's just like the more people we have who are doing that and the more people we have who are doing that who are consciously lifting up others around them, then success feels inevitable if we can crack that. It's inevitable. It's programmed (laughs) in. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you, Josh. I think we'll leave it there. Yeah, take care.